Okay. Oh, Lord, you are so good. We thank you, God, for this time that you've given us to come together as your girls and just pause from our hectic schedules and busy lives and um, individual tasks and duties that we have to accomplish throughout the day, Lord. We give this time to you right now. We want to come before you and be still before you, Lord. Open our hearts, plant the seeds of your word down deep, Father, so that they can um, come back up to remind us of your truths and your love. God, we just give you our lives, ourselves, and uh, thank you so much for our sweet church. Thank you for everyone that's here. Please be with um, our loved pastors and church leaders as they're away. Bring them back safe to us. And Lord, we want to take a minute to pray for the victims of the hurricane. Lord, we thank you, God. You are so gracious and sparing Florida, Lord, but we know that the Bahamas were really hit hard, Father. We pray, God, that you would meet every need that they have, Father. I pray that you would just start putting into place resources and um, the provisions that they're going to need to rebuild, even from fresh water to, you know, rebuilding their homes, God. I pray that you would just be with them, that you would be glorified, and that uh, many would know would come to know you, Father, even through this tragedy. So again, we give you this time. I pray, Lord, that you would um, just meet us here as we sit at your feet to read from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so a bit of a little recap. We're in Exodus 14, and here we find the Israelites have finally been delivered from Egypt, right? So they're in the wilderness, they're in the desert, um, but it hasn't come at an easy cost. We know from last week, as uh, Juanita shared, the plagues, and man, oh man, the Lord really sent um, some, you know, diseases, pestilence, and then ultimately heartache and death to lead his people out. But here they are in the desert, and let's begin in verse 1, Exodus 14, 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite baal Siphon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites have wander- are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites do this. So let's pause here for a minute. Notice that the Lord tells Moses exactly where to lead his people. They're wandering in the desert, but God gives them pretty much exact coordinates of how he wants them to go and the exact place he wants them to encamp. And he says that he is going to do a work to bring himself glory. He's going to solidify once and for all in Pharaoh's heart and the Egyptian's heart that he is the one true God. Do you guys remember maybe back in Exodus 5 verse 2 where Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should go and obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, so I'm not going to let Israel go. Well, God's about to answer his question, who is this Lord? And he's going to, like I said, solidify it. One and done. So let's keep reading. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. 
the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped by the sea near Pihahiroth, opposite Baal Siphon. So here we find the Israelites completely trapped, right? They are literally sitting ducks. Um, if they look to the right of them, there's mountains, left mountains, front Red Sea, and now here's Pharaoh's army charging in. Would you say that they're in a hopeless situation? Absolutely, right? But remember, the Lord is the one who brought them there. He brought them to that, again, the exact spot where he wants them to be. Do you think that uh, it took him by surprise that Pharaoh was going to then come after them? No. God has a purpose and a plan for everything. Let's continue in verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching against them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? Can't you just see them, right? <laughs> what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So dramatic, right? But we as modern day children of God can't relate to this at all, right? No, no. We never complain. We never fall into despair, you know, never stress out. No. I think, yeah, you guys know I'm being sarcastic, right? <laughs> when difficulties come, though, and it seems that it is an ab absolute hopeless cause, isn't that when our God does his best work? And he said, I'm going to bring to glorify myself, right? Again, a purpose and a plan. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Okay, I want to pause here because the first, when I read this this week, I was like, oh, it's my new favorite verse. I love it. So let's read it again. <laughs> the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And isn't that so true? When we're in situations, we start thinking, what can I do? What should I do? What should I have done? What could I have done? Just be still. Let the Lord fight for you. So I think <laughs> what, as we encourage each other as sisters in the Lord, when we're going through something, we're going, go, be still. Let the Lord fight for you, right? This will be a good reminder. And perhaps that's encouragement for someone here tonight that you're really going through something and you're like, I don't know what to do. You know, if I look to the left, to the right, to the back, to, I, I'm hopeless. I don't know what to do. Don't do anything. Our God goes before us. He will fight for you. Be still and let him do that. Amen? Awesome. Okay. So let's see here. So Moses gives this strong exhortation to the people. God's going to fight for you. Be still. He will fight for you. Then I love it because he himself then goes and pleads to the Lord. <laughs> like, and he's like, yeah, okay, Lord, right? So, but that just shows his humanness. And a lot of times people look at leaders as being lucky. Oh, they're so spiritual. They're so lucky to be in leadership. Well, you can look at Moses and his life and really see how lucky leadership is. <laughs> And with this, I want to bring up that we really do, you guys, need to pray for our pastors, their wives, and their families. It is a very high calling that God places on our pastors and leaders' lives. They are um, 
held to a higher standard. They are called to lead us. They, you know, Paul said, follow me as I, as I follow Christ. But they are still human. They still have the same thoughts, feelings, struggles, concerns as every other member in their church. And I have a little bit of this firsthand experience with my dad being a pastor. And then my husband was our church's family pastor. And then I actually was on staff. So all of us serving in ministry, we really, you guys, you have to kind of like, yeah, God's going to do this. But inside you're like, Lord, how are you going to do this? So we really do need to hold up our leaders and our pastors in prayer for strength, guidance, um, discernment, because it's lonely at the top. A lot of times we put church leaders on a pedestal and we hold them to a higher standard and they really are just the same as us but have raised their hand and said, follow me as I follow Christ. And I'm telling you guys, prayers and support of those that you serve are more valuable than could ever be expressed. So I encourage you, every time we think of our sweet little church or our, um, our pastors, say a prayer for them because the Lord's bringing, you, bringing them to mind for a reason and a purpose. And so let's just take that with us tonight as well. Okay, so Moses' own fears and questions are shown as he goes to the Lord in verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. <laughs> so this tells us sometimes there's a time to pray and sometimes there's time to get going. So he's like, get going. <laughs> he says in verse 16, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. That must have been blind rage to follow right in after the Israelites, right? And I will gain the glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen, because Pharaoh thought he was pretty strong having all those horsemen and chariots. He's like, I will gain glory through all of it. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And here he says again, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Verse 19, then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. And throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. He was in between. He held the um, Egyptian armies at bay with leading his children with his light all night long so they could get through. This is pretty cool because commentators, after doing the logical math, um, have figured, you know, with the men, women, children, all that together, that approximately 3.6 million people and as possibly as high as 6 million people crossed the Red Sea that night. That's amazing. I was trying to find pictures of like a million people to even show. You can't even get like a million people in one picture to really show how many they are. So if, it, you know, a pretty good estimate would be 3.6 million, but even as high as 6 million crossed the Red Sea. The Lord intervened in a supernatural, mighty way, and he allowed enough time for all of his people to pass through to safety. Verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And I love how detailed the scriptures are here. 
I love that it tells us it was dry land and that there was a wall of water. So they weren't just like traipsing through, you know, some puddles. It was just shallow water. Shallow water doesn't create a wall, you know, and for it to be pushed back enough that it's dry land. Uh, Keep this in mind as we go on. Verse 23. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Remember how he said, I will show myself (laughs) and they will declare that I am the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Remember God said, You're not going to see these guys again. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Here are those descriptive details again. And, you know, there's been some controversy and dispute about, well, was it really dry land? Was it really the Red Sea? Maybe it was just kind of like a lake. And there's um, a a theory that there was um, a portion that they walked through that was maybe only about 12 inches high of water. So let's go with that for a minute, that even if it was, let's just suppose that I guess with a strong east wind, the water could have been pushed back, you know, 12 inches or so high, but it would be impossible for all of Pharaoh's army, chariots, and horsemen to be covered and killed in just 12 inches of water. So there you go. Again, the Lord puts every detail in there to prove what he did for the ages. There's no question that if it's written in this, word, this Bible, that it's exactly how it happened. Um, there's actually a really cool movie that I came across a couple years ago, and I found it again on Amazon. And if you guys have Amazon Prime, it's actually free on Amazon Prime Video, and there's clips of it on YouTube. It's called The Exodus Revealed. It's really good, you guys. It's about an hour long. And what it is is a group of um, scientists and divers went to prove this exact theory. They went to the Red Sea, and they went in, and you know, with their scuba gear and to this certain exact area where God told his, Israel, his uh, uh, people to go, the children of Israel, and they found, you guys have got to check it out, coral formations in circular form, chariot wheel form. They also found, and they said when they went down there looking, they were looking for circular formations and right angle formations, because those don't naturally occur in nature. You know, wheels are, have to be made by hands. And then same thing with the right angles, like the axles of the wheels. They have pictures of when they dove into the water, um, like I said, circular formations of coral, and where it looks like broken axles. What did we just read? That he jammed their wheels, and they came on, right, so they could not cross. This is the only place in the Red Sea that these are found. 
And they said it actually looks like a graveyard. There's these, you know, almost monument things everywhere. The other thing is in this exact place, and they show a map that this is the only area of flat ground. To the right and the left, there are miles deep chasms. But in this certain area, the um, silt on the bed of the, of the Red Sea is almost like talcum powder. And if you guys have ever seen the, the little magic trick or the science experiment where people put cornstarch in water, and then when they put pressure on, it's hard. This is like talcum powder, like that cornstarch, where they could walk across in this exact place. Again, God is in the details. He knows. They could have easily been there and be like, Lord, why did you bring us here? Because that's exactly where they needed to be to cross over. So yeah, the Exodus revealed is what it's called. Um, let's pick up in verse 30. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of God displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses, his servant. So a lesson that we can take from this is, again, the Lord brought his people to this exact place where they found themselves hopeless and helpless. They couldn't look to the right or the left. In front was an obstacle. Behind them was danger. So their only option was to what? Look up. And doesn't he bring us to those situations in life sometimes where we're like, Lord, I can't make any sense of this, so I have to look to you. He will drive us to that place to where we can only rely on him so that he can show us his deliverance power, that he has resources that we know nothing about, that he can make a way when there is no way. And I love that song that we sing here, that Do It Again song, where um, you make a way where there is no way, and I believe that you'll do it again. We sing that one here. That's such a great song. And I thought about this too. What happens when you share your testimony of what the Lord's done in your life? And you're like, and then this happened, and then, and then God did this. What do people say? No way, right? <laughs> Isn't that fitting? Right, he will make a way when there is no way. Um, he promises that he won't ever lead us into anything, though, that he will not provide for you and give you a way out. And that's uh, found in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So with this miracle of deliverance, he's teaching his people to trust him because as we continue to read on, there are difficult times coming ahead for them. And we can definitely learn from this lesson as well. All right, on to Exodus 15. It opens up with the people of Israel praising and worshiping the Lord. They're rejoicing. They're singing his praises about how he delivered them and the victory that he gave them um, with overcoming the Egyptian army. And I won't take time to read the whole song of praise, although it's really, really a great um, song. But it is worth noting that this is considered to be the oldest song ever recorded in the world. And um, poems and songs can be a great way to express relief, praise, and thanks when you've been delivered from something, right? I know that we come in here and um, we sing praise songs to praise the Lord, to thank him for what he's done and who he is, and then worship songs are more of the reflection, um, contemplating, reminding ourselves of his promises and who he is and what he um, can do 
in and through us and in our lives. And that's one thing that um, I love about our church here, that we definitely are a church body that loves to praise and worship the Lord. My, yes, my favorite thing is to sit right back in the congregation. And when we all sing together and our voices, I, I think, Lord, this must be just a little sample of what heaven's going to be like. You know, I love it. And I know that it blesses our Father as well. Um, he enjoys and appreciates when we express emotions over who he is and what he has done. I mean, we even just as humans, when somebody compliments us, doesn't that make you like feel good? Like, oh yeah. And not in a prideful way, but it does kind of touch your heart and make you feel good. So if we're like, Lord, you're so awesome and you did this and you promised that and you came through and he's like, I did. And, and you appreciate that. That's another thing. When you do something for someone and then they appreciate it, how much more do you want to do more to bless them and show them love? So why do we withhold that from the Lord? We shouldn't. We should tell him all the time how wonderful he is and re remind him and ourselves of what he has done for us. We should be um, excited about the victory that he has given us and enjoy his presence when we enter into praise and worship. Let's pick up in verse 22. All right, so they just had this wonderful um, miracle happen with the Red Sea. They're praising the Lord, and now you know what's going to happen. <laughs> then Moses led, the, led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shore. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink it because its water was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? All right, so here they are grumbling again. How quickly they forget the power of the Lord. But again, shame on the Israelites. We can't relate to this at all, right? God's in this miraculous work. Praise you, Lord. Praise you. Uh, now we don't have any water. You brought us out here to die. This was a lesson for me and some of the other girls in the group we were all sharing. Yeah, that one hit a little close to home. How quickly we forget what God has done before we're complaining again. Verse 25, then Moses cried out to the Lord. I love how Moses just goes to God and he's like, what, what do you want me to do with these people? <laughs> Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. The awesome lesson here is that the wood is a representation of the cross. And the cross makes all the difference, doesn't it? When the cross is introduced to the most bitter parts and places of our lives, God can heal it and he can bring sweetness out of it because our God is in the business of changing and restoring lives and bringing healing to hurt. That was something that jumped out and I thought, wow, that's really neat, Lord, that you can even bring sweetness out of the yucky bitterness um, in our lives. So continuing on, there the Lord ruled, I'm sorry, there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. Verse 26, he said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And this is actually one of the names of the Lord. It's Jehovah Rapha. So Jehovah is the God or the Lord. And then Rapha is who heals. So he is our God who heals. 
And God is preparing them to receive his laws because he tells them, if you obey my laws, I will keep you. If you keep my laws, I'll take care of you. And this is for good reason because many of his laws were for healthy living and sanitation purposes. And they're in the desert and the wilderness. And so this was really to keep them. All right, Exodus 16, we're flying through. Uh, Verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. I love how dramatic they are. There we sat around with pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And you can see their hands are just so dramatic, you know, the whole scarlet O'Hare thing. Here the takeaway can be, be very careful when times get tough, we get tempted to think about the good old days, right? Oh, well, you know, when times are tough that we have to stand up in our witness for the Lord or we have to, you know, be set apart from the crowd of what the norm is. We just think, oh, it was so much easier and so much more fun back when. No. A lot of times we think about our B.C. days, our before Christ days, in much better light than they actually were. We tend to focus on the good parts and not so much on the bad parts right? But this is a deceit of the enemy to get us to to focus and remember those things, just like he's doing with the Israelites. Don't forget the bondage that you were in when you were slaves to sin. Grumbling and pining for the past can lead you back to Egypt, which is a picture of the world. Longing for that can lead you right back, and be careful that then you're not found right back into the same bondage that you were delivered from. So when those thoughts come, you catch them and you take them captive and you said, no, I remember who I was and where I was without Jesus and I will follow him and I will obey his commandments. Verse four, then the Lord said, and this is again in his great mercy to his people, okay, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in that is twice as much as they gather on the other days. And here we're starting to see that he's establishing the concept of the Sabbath, which we'll get into more later on. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said. You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And I hope that that was conviction for them. And that's something, again, for us to remember. When we start grumbling against each other or our leadership or our bosses or our husbands or whoever else right? (laughs) The Lord gave those people to us, so who are we grumbling against? Yes, the Lord. He is the one that has brought these people to us, and we're in this situation that you find yourself in, just like we learned in Exodus 14. Unless you are in that position out of disobedience, then guess who's to blame? Yourself. So be careful with that too. Lord, why did you do it? And he's like, 
<laughs> I didn't do anything. You're the one that disobeyed, and now you found yourself in this predicament. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, verse 10, they looked toward the desert. There was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little, and when they measured it out, when they measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who <laughs> gathered little did not have too little. God's economy, right? Just enough. <laughs> Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep it until morning. He was seeing if they were willing and obedient to follow the exact instructions of the Lord. Verse 20, however, <laughs> some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots, and it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. He's like, I told you all, don't keep it overnight. It's going to, you know, the Lord's going to provide more for you. But they were fearful and wanted to keep the extra. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And he said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they had to get creative with what to do with this manna. And I imagine that they made banana bread, right? And manicotti, right? <laughs> they had to get creative because they ate manna every day for 40 years, verse 35 tells us. And I was thinking about this, and a common, uh, one of the commentaries said, if you kind of think, how is this even possible? If you think about like Central and South American cultures and what they've even done with just like corn, you can grind it, boil it, make it into, you know, patties. You can use it as flour. You can all kinds of, I think they had to get really creative to add variety to their menu, but they did. All right, 24. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, <laughs> some of the people wanted to test it, right? They went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has always given you the Sabbath. That's why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. And later, uh, we'll learn, too, that the Sabbath was implemented and created for man. God knew that we would need a day to physically rest our bodies. That's why he's commanded, yes, amen. He's commanded that on that seventh day, we need to rest. 
And it's um, important to maybe point out that this is even um, set into place and instructed to the people before the law is given later on. The people, verse 31, the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was like, uh, it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in, manna, of manna in it, then place it for the Lord to keep to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so it might be preserved. And they placed this inside of the Ark of the Covenant that would then follow and go along with the people through their journey. Again, here we have another name that the Lord identifies himself with, Jehovah Jireh, which is God, my provider. He provides for his people. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Verse 36 says, an omer is one-tenth of an ephath, which is so helpful. But I asked Google, how much is an omer? So for us today, it's about 9.3 cups to give you a rough estimate. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, the Lord further provides for his children. Uh, we see in 16, he satisfies their hunger. And now in 17, he's going to provide water, which we know is absolutely necessary to sustain life. Philippians 4.19 tells us that our God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out in the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, here we go, <laughs> why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then the Lord cried out to the people, what do you want me to do with these people? Right? Or what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horab. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's so... I know, <laughs> sounds awful familiar. Lord, where are you? Are, are you in this or not? Are you going to help me or not, right? Oh, it's so hard to point the finger, but I think my dad always said when you point one finger, there's three pointing back at you. So we have to be careful not to be too critical on these Israelites. But this is something really cool with this whole story of the rock and water. The Lord instructs Moses to strike the, walk, the rock to bring forth water. And the Old Testament is full of symbolism that points to the truth of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul actually tells us that the rock here in chapter 17 is a representation of Jesus. 
And in John 7, 37, Jesus is speaking of this to the crowd at the Feast of Tabernacles, which the Feast of Tabernacles is really cool because it's actually the celebration that the children of Israel hold um, that commemorate their and celebrate their preservation in the desert for those 40 years. So Jesus is here at that feast, and uh, verse 37 says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Drawing that correlation back together. Jesus is the rock that we see here in Exodus. Number one, he is the only source of living water. Number two, he was struck and crucified so that, number three, we might receive life and salvation from him. And any who drink of his living water will have eternal life. Verse eight, now we get into the Amalekites. So I'm gonna just, um, for sake of time, I won't read all the scriptures, but I'll tell you kind of what's going on here. So Israel comes up on these uh, people, the Amalekites, and it's interesting because the Amalekites are descendants from Amalek. And Amalek is the grandson of Esau, which we might remember reading back in Genesis that Esau had a twin brother named Jacob. Esau is always a representation of the flesh, and Jacob is always a representation of the spirit. So here we see a spiritual battle being fought physically with the armies of Esau against the armies of Jacob. Um, and Joshua is down, and he's fighting. He's a mighty warrior, and he's fighting the battle. But Moses, along with Aaron and Hur, are up on the mountaintop. And the Bible tells us that as long as Moses' arms were raised, Joshua was winning against the Amalekites or the flesh. The spirit was winning against the flesh. But whenever he got tired, that's when they would start to lose. So Aaron and Hur held up Moses' arms, and they were able to be victorious. The lesson here would be sometimes we're called to be in that valley of interaction, fighting against the flesh. And other times we're called to be on the mount of intercession, praying for our brothers and sisters that are fighting in the valley, that spiritual battle. All right? Um, Exodus 13, some great advice here. I'm sorry, 18, great advice. Um, Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law to Moses about how to establish um, a system of leadership to lead the people. He's like, Moses, you're doing a great job, but you can't do it all. You've got to raise up leaders. Here are the leaders that you need to look for. And this is actually really great advice even to us on how to set up a system of leadership and to serve those that you have been called to minister to. Uh, Exodus 19. I want to get to 20 to get to the Ten Commandments, so we're moving through. <laughs> a little quick recap of 19. We find the Israelites, they're preparing themselves to encounter God and receive his commandments. Let's read verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, 
then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The Lord is telling Moses, go remind the people of what I've done, of, of the miracles I've done in their lives and the victory that I've given them, and that he is choosing them to be his people if they will obey him. It's kind of like a proposal, right? I love you. I want you for myself, but I need you to obey the commandments that I give you. So Moses goes back and tells the people, and they agree. God was and is looking for people to represent himself to the world. It was the Israelites back then, and it's us as his followers, as Christians today. Um, verse 10 goes on to where he says, you need to have the people go consecrate themselves. They're to be set apart, have them wash their clothes. Um, I'm going to come down upon the mountain, but do not let them touch the mountain Put, step a foot on the mountain because they will die. God calls them to sanctify themselves before they come into his presence. And they cannot touch the mountain. They must obey every detail that he gives them. Verse 16, God comes down on the mountain in a mighty, magnificent display of thunder and lightning. And then in verse 22 and 24, he reiter reiterates that all must obey his instructions, even the priests which shows us here that no one is exempt from obedience. All right, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Number one, the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. Meaning, no other gods before or in the presence of me. This takeaway is that it's not okay, even if God is placed first in your life, to have any other gods in your life, before, below, or beside him. He is exclusive. He is to be your all in all, and we are to worship him alone. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. Here we're told no images are to be made of God, nothing that is created in heaven or earth. And this is understandable that it would be an insult to him because he created all things. That would be like if I had some molding clay here and made like a little statue of a horse and I and I said that's me that's Lindsay right there I made that how can that be all that an, you know mind body soul in one formed thing that's why he says nothing under heaven of earth do not confine me to something that simple when we do that as humans and we have over the ages you see this in Egyptian gods or even Greek mythology we try to, to bring God down to our size, our way of thinking. How would we want God to act? How would we want God to look? And he says, don't do that because I am far above anything you could ever um, imagine or conceive. 
Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. This is something, too, that I, I took a minute to think about, that really the only purpose that a um, religious image or relic fulfills is the need to be consciously aware and reminded of God. We think about some other um, denominations that have relics or, you know, images. And what do you do? Oh, yeah, that's Jesus. Consciously thinking about Jesus when I see that. But if we are living in a continued state of fellowship and communion with God, we're not going to need a tangible thing to remind us of him because he's with us all the time, right? And that's another reason why he said, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. Don't limit me to one object. So, all right, verse seven, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Other versions say you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. It's widely believed that this is when you use the Lord's name in a profane or profane way or as a curse word, but really there's much more than that. If you take the, na- the Lord's name, the name of Jehovah, You are taking him as your Lord, your guide, the director of your life. You're identifying with him. You're taking your name. It makes you think of like when a bride takes her husband's name. I'm now identified with my husband. Um, If you take his name and do not allow him to lead you and obey his guidance, then you've taken the Lord's name in vain. Just like with a bride. She gets married, she takes her husband's name. But if she lives her life or does things that doesn't show she's loyal to him or that she loves him, wouldn't you you say that she took his name for the wrong reasons? She doesn't love him or that she took his name in vain, right? The greatest blasphemy is not cussing with his name, although I highly discourage that. (laughs) Please don't do that but rather making an acknowledgement of God in words and then living your life in a way that he has no place in it outside these four walls. And that was a different way. I'd never really heard it presented that way before, but it does make sense, doesn't it? All right, number eight tells us to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Um, a lot of times um, there's been a you know, point of contention or even dissension for centuries about the Sabbath where people say, well, should you worship on Sunday or Saturday or whatever? And I say, every day is a good day to worship the Lord, right? Let's major on the majors and minor on the minors. Let's just get together and worship the Lord. Be aware of added rules of legalism that get put onto the pure commandments of God. Because instead of the Sabbath being a day of rest, the Pharisees put so many rules on it, that it ended up being a day of burden because you were so afraid you were going to break something, or break a rule rather than resting. So if you get tied up into the um, bondage of legalism, you're going to find yourself exasperated and exhausted. Stick to what the Lord tells you in his word. All right, the next one. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. Where are my fellow mamas? Can we get an Amen. For our kids to obey us. How many times do we, do we <laughs> quote this one to them, right? Um, honor your father and your mother. And this is, as we know in Ephesians, it's pointed out that this is the, prom- the commandment with a promise. 
that you may live long in the land. Um, parents should always be considered superior to their children, just like God is superior to us. And children are never to be considered equal to their parents. You shall not murder, but as we know in Matthew, this is not limited to just an act that causes death. Matthew 5 tells us that if you hate your brother, it's the same as if you murdered him. You shall not commit adultery. Again, Matthew 5.28 tells us that looking at someone in lust is also breaking this commandment. It really does come down to a matter of the heart, right? Well, Lord, I didn't kill him. I just can't stand him. Eh, he says it's the same thing. <laughs> you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor or do not lie. You shall not covet, which means to desire earnestly your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So in conclusion, the law was intended to make us realize we are spiritually bankrupt and in need for a savior. There's no way that we can keep the law to a T and earn our own righteousness. Our righteousness only comes from Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. And so this makes us aware of that need and drives, drives us to him who is our only source for this righteousness. Through these past six chapters, we see a theme and a lesson for us as God's people now. The Israelites were, of course, his chosen people. They still are his chosen people. But because of what Jesus has done, we're grafted in and we're adopted into that family. So now we are the children of God. We see that God is our protector, our victor, and way maker. As we uh, read about the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea and destroying Pharaoh's army. He's our healer, and his cross can sweeten the most bitter parts of our lives. He's our provider. He knows what we need before we even ask. And again, he has resources that we cannot even fathom. And he promises by his own name, Yahweh, Jehovah God, I am, fill in the blank. He wants to be everything that you need, and he can be everything that you need. If, like the Israelites, we choose to follow his commandments, we need to be set apart for him as his chosen people. And I don't know about you, but it sounds like a pretty good deal to me. What do you guys think? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this time. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would just um, cement these little lessons into our heart, Father. We do choose to follow you. We are your people. We are your girls, and we love you. Uh, be with us now as we break into our groups. Multiply the time that we have left. And Lord, we just thank you again for how good you are. You are our provider. You um, protect us, and you give us all of your promises in your word. And we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.